Hello and welcome to the Lib Dem podcast. We've now got a special episode on the NHS crisis because it is now the number one topic amongst voters of areas of concern and we couldn't wish for a better panel to actually discuss this. So first up, first time on the podcast for both our panellists and we have another one coming soon. First, needs no introduction, it's our Deputy Leader of the Lib Dems and the MP for St Albans and the lead on the NHS and social care is Daisy Cooper. Hi, welcome to the podcast, Daisy. Thank you very much. And um, joining us from the lovely area of West Sussex is Kate O'Kelly, a former GP, dual-hatted counsellor, so deals with all things from social care right the way up to acute care. So welcome to the podcast, Kate. Great to be here. Thank you, John. And our fourth panellist, who's just arrived, is Mosin Khan, who is a, correct me if I make sure I get this right, you are a forensic psychiatry doctor working in London. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, uh, NHS consultant forensic psychiatrist. Um, I, I also sit on federal policy committee, and you know I have helped out with lots of health and social care policies, and helped Daisy and others um, with health parliamentary stuff. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Welcome to the podcast. So today, as we're recording, is a very key day where nurses and ambulance workers are going on strike today. Um, now, we've had lots of issues come up over the last few weeks and months, lots of it being led by the Lib Dems about access to dentists, access to GPs, 600,000 excess deaths last year, A&E delays, chronic shortage of infrastructure investment in the NHS. So I suppose the question to you, Daisy, to start us off is, is the NHS broken? Well, the NHS is definitely in crisis. And one of my big frustrations over the last few weeks has been the fact that the government has refused to even acknowledge that the NHS is in crisis. And when you've got people who are dying in the back of ambulances because they can't even get admitted to hospital, we've got people having um, corridor care, which is you know often not very dignified. And you've got um, NHS frontline staff saying they're having to move people out of wards to put other people in just so they can have a dignified death behind a curtain. I mean, really, the NHS definitely is in crisis. Um, and, you know, you can argue about whether or not it's it's broken. But what I would say is if it is broken, it, it definitely can be fixed, but it does require political will. And I think at the moment we're not seeing that political will uh, from the government. Um, but certainly I think, you know, the closer we get to the next general election, we'll be outlining lots of ideas as to how we think we can uh, save our NHS and put it on a firm footing for the future. Now, Kate, you were a, a former GP before you turned into a, a, a dual-hatted counsellor. I don't know which has been a rougher ride for you. But comparing what you knew back then to what you know now, how do you see the NHS at the moment? Well, I see it as well on campaigning on the doorsteps, actually. Um, uh, and I've been talking to GP colleagues, but on the doorsteps, I was in Witterings the other day by the seaside and a, and a patient a resident said to me that she was really desperate when her husband was quite frail, couldn't get a GP appointment. And after a few weeks, she was going to alternatives, wondering what to do. And I think one of the reasons why there is a general satisfaction with primary care has gone right down is the fact that people just don't have that confidence and reassurance. So that came out to me loud and clear on the doorstep. <laughs> and another example I've got, uh, I'm looking for candidates, as you do. And one of my candidates is a dentist and she's near the end of her career. And she gave me a fantastic briefing on the dentistry, which I would say is properly broken. Um, and she's reluctant to retire because she's so worried about leaving her colleagues. Um, and and the desperate state of that that could be another topic but two yes, examples I think, 
we, we will. We, there's so many topics that might splinter off from this, and and as our listeners know, these discussions are fairly free ranging. So feel free to interact with each other as well. But motion, I suppose one thing that's always come up. There's always been talk about pressures on the NHS. It's been you know whether that's through winter and actually the collapse never actually happens. Usually on the back of the staff going above and beyond. And and as someone whose mother was a nurse and dad was an NHS manager, and the, the staff always step up. But at this point, the staff are exhausted. So who's there to pick up the NHS now? And I think that's, you've summed it up perfectly there, John, that, you know, what happens is staff work the extra mile, you know, because they care so much about their patients, you know, their patients themselves often. And, you know, we we have gone through quite a really major once-in-a-century pandemic as well, just a few years ago, where staff went the extra mile there. And... The issue is that, yes, we do hear the NHS is in crisis every single winter, you know, every single year from 2008, 2010, but this is on a different level. And it's on a level where constituents, you know, ordinary people are seeing that for themselves. You know, you will struggle to get a GP appointment on time. You might struggle to get dental care in a very immediate way where, you know, like I've been on the phone phoning 20 NHS dentists trying to find an NHS dentist. Um, you know, I've been in that situation where I've tried to go to the NHS for something I needed doing, but unfortunately, and you know, no fault of the NHS itself, it's just, you know, resources, you know, I've had such a long waiting list that you then start looking at other options. And that's where, you know, everyone's feeling it now in terms of, you know, sort of, people on the ground are, um, are are sensing that something is really wrong now with the NHS and the social care as well. I think Mohsen mentioned the fact that there's you know, an NHS crisis every single year, there's a winter crisis, and I think it's just really important for people who maybe haven't had first experience of going to hospital, how the nature of the winter crisis has changed, because, you know, uh, in previous years, the question was how many beds are full? How busy mm. are the hospitals? Um, and uh, and how cold is it? That was kind of really the nature of a winter crisis. Now the question is, how many people are dying needlessly, and mm. where are they dying? Is it mm. is it three hundred? Is it four hundred? Is it five hundred people a week? Um, and they're not just dying in hospital beds, but they're dying at home on cold floors on the street in corridor care in waiting rooms. I mean, the, the nature of what this winter crisis is has changed radically and I think for the government to continue to refuse it's not a crisis is is really quite alarming it's just a government in denial I'd say and, mm. and the beds issue is something that shows about the chronic failure because I, I did a little bit of research so the number of beds that have increased in the last 10 years has only gone up by 500 that's it given all the pressure on the NHS of a growing population of an, a, a more elderly population we know that we're going to need more beds yet in that time it's gone up by 0.5 percent which is it can't. It can't be sustainable. And the, it's the flow problem. We've just the, the hospitals have got stuck. And as Daisy says, this is. If you said that, in, if you parachuted yourself into this 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 year, it's deeply shocking that everybody's dying. But that if you've got ninety eight percent occupancy, uh, the hospitals can't run like that. And they've let that. The Conservatives over this length of time have not done the capital investment, and they've got the ideology. Let's look after everybody at home. But if you can't get the resilience in the home in the community then you're, you're stuck between two things. And I think that's what they've done. And I think it- with a lot of solutions, you need investment and you, know, you need politicians who are willing to actually say, 
Yes, it might look wasteful on paper that, say, you're running at 85% or 90% staffing, occupancy, and so forth. But you need that slack because, you know, things do happen. Crises do happen. And what we've seen is a failure from politicians being willing to actually have courage and say, I'm going to explain to the public why we need that slack, why we need greater funding, and why we need to keep staffing. And there was a political choice as well. So again, I, oh, my dad was an NHS manager. Actually, the lack of NHS managers now, because all organisations need efficiency, and the NHS man. And so, what there's been the debate is we need everything's going to be about frontline, and this could be about the policing or nursing or whatever else. But actually, the structures that make sure nurses can go and do their job without have being tied down with all the other admin, they've gone in the. We're well, not gone, but they've they haven't kept pace in the NHS. So Daisy, that's something. From a lead point, which it isn't a, and you know, a, you know, the, the Tories are all bluster and bluster. You know, forty new hospitals when they arrive. You know, we're going to replace nurses and doctors, but actually, the support for those people just aren't there. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge workforce crisis, and this is the big elephant in the room, which the government refuses to talk about. Um, I mean, there was a there was a cross party movement within Parliament to get behind something called the Workforce Amendment. Now, this was an amendment tabled by. Uh, Jeremy Hunt, who was then the chair of the Health and uh, Social Care Select Committee. And there was a cross-party movement for eight months where we tried to get a new law um, written in uh, to the Health and Social Care Act, which would require Parliament every single year to produce a projection of how many workforce they actually needed. Um, And Boris Johnson's government spent eight months whipping against that amendment. Now, eventually, obviously, Jeremy Hunt has now become Chancellor. Um, and when he made his first speech, he said he was going to actually produce this, these projections. And he he and his government have now said they are going to produce the work, workforce projections for the next five, 10 and 15 years. Um, but if you think about you know, if Boris Johnson and his government had said yes to that amendment, you know, now 13, 14 months ago, we could have perhaps had those numbers. And it's really important because there are exhausted staff, you know, whether they're doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, paramedics, or indeed whether they're managers or secretaries, the people that do turn up day in, day out, they're exhausted, they're overstretched, they're suffering with the cost of living like so many other people. And they're also having to deal deal with the issues around patient safety because when there aren't enough staff in a hospital, you know you can't cut your cloth like you can in a business, right? You can't just suddenly say, right, we're not going to provide this service anymore. You, it's not like a hospitality industry where you can say we're going to serve a, sh- a smaller menu and we're only going to open three days a week. You know, you can't cut your cloth uh, to patients, particularly not when there's an enormous backlog. Uh, and so, workforce is one of the the really you know really big issues. Um, and we need to say to people who do turn up that the cavalry is coming. And the government isn't able to say that because they haven't yet outlined what those projections are. As as a general election candidate over the last, oh, I can't remember how many general elections we've had over the, in the last few years, we've lost, uh, countless. One of our most successful policies, reaction-wise, has been a penny on income tax to pay for the NHS. Now, I'm interested to hear what the panel thinks because when taxation is at a 70-year high, the scope for doing further tax increases is probably very politically narrow in terms, is this more, as Mosin alluded to, about reform and actually changing the way we actually, because I, I also don't want to talk about top-down NHS reforms because we've had enough of those as well. But how do we fix this problem then? If, we, if, we're, if we're a high taxation, how do we fix that? Other than growing the economy, we'll probably be the one. Da- Daisy, do you want to come back in on this one? Sure. Well, let me set out the broad principles of how we do it. Like, so what we continue to say all the time is that we are a party of fair taxation, right? 
So we want to see big taxes on big oil and gas companies that are raising, you know, that are bringing in billions of pounds because of the war in Ukraine and other factors. You know, we think that the 0.5% super wealthy should have various loopholes uh, closed down. We think that the big gambling companies that made lots of money during the pandemic and continue to thrive should be paying more. Um, but you, but in a cost of living crisis, you shouldn't be putting that tax burden onto the shoulders of ordinary folk who are really struggling to put the heating on and to put food on their tables. So actually, this question of whether we're high taxation or low taxation, I think, is the wrong question. We're a party of fair taxation. And it will be down to us to outline in our manifesto um, what we want to spend money on and where we're going to raise those funds. But as a broad starting principle, we'll raise funds from those that can afford to pay and not put it on the shoulders of those who can't. And that's the opposite of what the Conservative government are doing at the moment. Um, in terms of what policies we, we might use, I think, again, we have to see where the country is at, at the time of the next general election. Um, and which taxes we might actually look at. But there's no doubt that the NHS and social care do need investment. I think there is there's a case for looking at ways in which you can find efficiencies in the NHS. But when I, I mean, I've visited a lot of hospitals now. I've visited, visited a lot of GP surgeries. I've been to dental hospitals. And I can tell you where you can make savings. You've got to invest in proper IT um, uh, systems because you know, the stories I hear where a nurse from a maternity unit has to physically walk across a hospital, you know, with a patient in a wheelchair to hand deliver some notes to another doctor because there's maybe a complication uh, for that pregnant mother. You know, I mean, that's absurd. This stuff should be on your phone. You should have notifications and settings like you do on your sort of Facebook or Twitter or Insta account. And actually, so we need investment from the government to actually make IT more efficient. We need the government to repair our hospitals that are crumbling down because how on earth can you look after patients if the roof is about to fall in? I mean, to invest in all the new machinery we need. You don't have doctors spending three hours trying to make a, an MRI scanner work because it's too old to function. I mean, if you invest in those things, in the IT, the equipment and the hospitals, you're going to suddenly really drive up efficiency in the NHS. And at the moment, those are things that frontline staff can't control. And Kate, as a county councillor, you know, like myself, we deal, there's, there's no fixing NHS crisis without fixing social care. I think the exact number, I don't know sure the exact number, 14,000 people are currently in beds that could be done in their own homes or in uh, in some sort of social care setting. So, Kate, but if councils are strapped for cash, and Daisy was right about, you know, think, um, about having fair taxation, but if, if councils have got X amount, of, and I'm sure your county is exactly the same as mine, the vast majority of council tax goes on adult social care already, how then do we fix that system where we get ahead of it? Because, you know, places like Lancashire are not going to survive going forward, the county council, unless there's a radical redistribution of wealth. Or should social care be taken away from councils? That is, Do we need something really radical? Yeah, that's radical transformation. We desperate. I mean, going back... <laughs> The investment, as Daisy said, investment in the buildings and uh, the equipment and the IT, yes, we have to invest in the people. At the moment, it's, it, it, it's a burning platform in terms of retention and the stress and the mental health of the, of the staff. And you can't then do another top-down uh, reorganisation. But in the county perspective, I was at a meeting the other day and there were hundreds of patients who were medically fit for discharge in the, in our, the three hospitals covering West Sussex. And I said, how, how many of them waiting to go home? And what, is, what are they waiting for? Are they waiting for a home care package or are they waiting for an assessment? And they've come back with an answer. 
uh, and it was about half and most of them going home and half of them were waiting for an assessment so those at the moment the staffing which again is loads of vacancies in the county council social care department have not got the staff to do the assessments in hospital because most of the time they're doing lots of other financial assessments and other other assessments on people who are desperately in need of care at home who are struggling if they haven't got a family carer then they might be lonely and keeping the heating off and in desperate circumstances so the county council have to run these all these assessments and at the moment they have i think because people are dying in corridors they have to prioritize getting those assessments done for those individuals but then once they're out of hospital they need a home care package and the home care package um the home care services do not have the staff so we're going back in, round in circles so there isn't a radical solution with, without getting the staff in and the staff is the most urgent activity we must sort out and then we we can be very clever with innovation in general practice uh, with tech and lots of other things I think there are, there are short-term and there are long-term solutions to this. I think, you know, one of the short-term ones, which, you know, um, Ed announced just this weekend, was increasing the minimum wage for care workers. Um, now, we're not suggesting that this is going to be a quick fix, and we're not certainly not suggesting it's a silver bullet, but it's certainly the first step in the right direction. Because at the moment, again, with the cost of living crisis, there are people leaving social care to work in hospitality, to work in Amazon warehouses, even to work in the NHS, uh, because they get paid more. And so I think actually there's a really, really important debate to have there about actual social care pay. In the longer term, we need a massive rebalancing of funds, because at the moment, um, everything is waiting till it gets to crisis point, and it costs a lot more money to have somebody in A&E or in ICU than it does to have them being looked after in their own home. And so to deal with the immediate problem, you need an injection of funds. But longer term, we need to be looking at investing in public health measures so people are actually healthier and lead healthier lives. You need a lot more investment in GPs, including more GPs so people can get seen early on without having to go uh, to hospital. We need to have more district nurses, nurses, more domiciliary care, support people in their own homes. And we need to move away from uh, this kind of uh, hospital-based model of the NHS and more to a home care and community-based model of care. That's going to take a huge effort and it can't be done quickly, but we need to be able to set our sights on that and set some sort of parameters in place as to how we're going to get there. Just, just one thing to come in on that at the moment, because of all the vacancies, a lot of staff are just going to agencies and then costing the trust enormously. I think that is right. So that's just an example of a, you know, we're just wasting money on that at the moment. Yeah, and that, that brings the question about the NHS as an employer as well. Because if the NHS is too, uh, is too old fashioned in its employment practices and says no to people taking leave or taking last minute holiday or flexible working, then that's another driver for people actually leaving the NHS workforce and working for an agency on their own terms and getting paid a lot more money for it. But obviously not good for the taxpayer. No. I understand most of you haven't come in for a while, but I realise that Daisy's got to go in just a couple of minutes. So final thoughts from you, Daisy. I mean, we, we've got our commitment to help. Uh, we had our five-point winter plan from the Lib Dems. I mean, what what's for people, because we have a lot of people who campaign on the NHS, uh, listen to this podcast, a lot of people that are campaigning on, from the ground up. What would, what would you recommend to Lib Dems across the country? What can they do? 
Well, I mean, first of all, they can, as ordinary citizens, they can petition their own MPs if they haven't got, well, even if they've got a Lib Dem MP or not, they can petition their own MPs about their own experiences and what they would like to see. I think the more that we get people talking about the NHS, the higher up it will go in terms of the priorities for all the political parties. Um, the second thing I would say for anybody standing for election is to actually go and talk to health and social care professionals and find out what the challenges are in your own area. I think the experiences of um, uh, health and social care in rural areas is very different from those uh, in towns or cities. Um, and that's, you know, that's quite important. But fundamentally, I think the issues that residents write to me about is access to their GP, access to dentists, and uh, any of their members wanting to come to the spring conference will have the opportunity to speak about both social care and dentistry, uh, because I think both of those motions have been selected. So I'd say, you know, campaign in your local areas, talk to local providers and to local residents and then come to conference and share those experiences. Lovely. Well, that seems a perfect place to let you go, Daisy. And then uh, me, Mosin and uh, Kate will continue things. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast and have a have a great rest of your day. Pleasure. Good to see you all. Ta-ra. Thanks, Daisy. Yeah. Thank you. So mostly we've 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 talked obviously the reason I desperately wanted to talk about mental health as well and actually early intervention again we've we're talking a lot about how key this is that stopping things building into more costly and expensive issues later on and clearly mental health is, is that it goes right alongside social care and acute care as well. I mean, I mean one, one thing, thing I'd say is a lot, lot of these issues, issues transcend just healthcare when it comes to mental health. health. And um, one of the things that we unfortunately saw in the past with austerity was you had the NHS being ring-fenced, but everything else was not ring-fenced. So then you saw things that are major contribute to people's mental health, keeping people you know, sort of out of crises, out of hospital, out of all of the things that cost a lot and are quite difficult to fix um, or to help people with are things like housing, you know, things like education, those things when they start to suffer, you know, when you have local authority cuts and local authorities can't help people as much with all those other things that keep people well and provide that support structure around people, that's when you then see mental health suffering much more and then obviously you know the knock-on effect on people's lives and on um, you know mental health services and so forth so you really you need to have that cross-departmental look at things funding things making sure that you know if, if you're staffing in education is suffering in your schools is going to be suffering and you know i'm aware of that there's a teacher strike happening at some point um then you know sort of the people who can help children and young people's mental health are not going to be there or are not going to be able, you know, if you've got vacancies and so forth, they're not going to be able to help recognise on things and intervene in a way that can then stop um, later on um, effects. Yeah, and and it goes, we're very lucky, we have an educational psychologist as part of our counsellor group and I mean, this was a direct impact from COVID. That that break that COVID had, where a lot of children found um, school as a little bit of a sanctuary if home life wasn't particularly great, mm. and the knock-on effect that is going to have with those children. I mean, she she Debbie, our, like I say, our counselor, just is has been non-stop basically since COVID, trying to catch up on some of these. And then, like I said, it has a distinct knock-on effect then with whether that's crime later on, whether that's mm. mental health services later on, and again going back to a county council level. We've seen cuts in early intervention units as well. So things just, you know, it's robbing Peter to pay Paul and seems, yeah. just, and, and it's just not coordinated and it's not long-term thinking, is it, Kate? 
No, it's not. And um, just a couple of things. Um, my daughter's training to be a children's social worker, and she said at the moment the amount of um, referrals that are coming in are just, they're just absolutely piling in because if, if families are under that le level of pressure, then it's going to come out in the mental health and then they're going to have more and more um, safeguarding referrals. And that's one area she's working in. <laughs> in fact, my other daughter at one stage worked as an educational mental health practitioner in schools, which I think is Lib Dem policy. And these are, I think, the evidence base. This is what you do. So you go in and every school has one. So rather than the teachers doing mental health first aid, you have real professionals in there. And if they're primary age, they work with the with the parents. And if they're secondary age, they work with um, the, the uh, individuals, the adolescents. And, you know, those nipping those um, uh, early symptoms in the bud, preventing enduring mental health problems, building resilience, building more functional behavior in these young people. It's incredibly, it's incredibly uh, worthwhile investment. And you need long-term thinking and brave policies to do that because it's easy to say, well, it's gonna to cost too much, but actually just look at the savings. If you have these, in these young people really supported and their families younger. So, so it absolutely needs to be our policy. And I hope Daisy and her team will be able to find um, the money for that because it's absolutely critical. One thing I would say is, you know, I, I've seen a lot of innovative work working across mental health where, you know, hospitals, NHS trusts, all the various structures that are associated with that, they, they work in really good partnership with housing providers, with educational establishments, heavily with local authorities, um, you know, so that you are moving towards more of a focus on prevention. So you know, there's a lot of regional, local, innovative work happening. And fundamentally, you know, that's a very dem approach to things, you know, giving people on the ground, organisations on the ground, you know, the power and resources, and then letting them learn learn from each other, experiment and do things better. But of course, it comes back to making sure that all those various areas, housing, education, policing, are well-resourced, well-staffed, and you know, have the capacity to be able to work collaborative, collaboratively together so that you know, in the long term, we improve mental health. How, how do we sell that then from a political point of view? Because we, we touched on it before about, you know, it's all about big statement pieces. It's, it's all about mm. front lines. It's all about hospitals when actually, uh, and, and, you know, I remember under the, the previous Labour government, they made horrendous mistakes with um, mm. uh, public financing initiatives. So the, so the new Blackburn Hospital, that's not a million miles from here, you know, cost for, is going to be paid off like in the next 40 years and it's going to cost so much more because, again, it was a quick fix rather than kind of a, a long-term strategy of investment and, uh, and and preventative care, which we all agree with. And, whether, and again, whether that's policing, education, the earlier you can get stuff, the better. But it's not as sexy to sell politically yeah. because you might not get the benefit of it. Someone else might because it's a 10-year mm. plan. Do we just have to be bold, both Kate and Motion, and just say, look, this is what we believe will be right in the end? I think in one way, because... So much is falling apart if you're a citizen and trying to use different services. You know, so, so, I mean, society is essentially much worse off in many ways now compared to several years ago. You can just see that when you, when you try to use, when you try to do anything. I think that gives 
a good opportunity to be able to actually say, well, you know, all of these services are not working. We need to resource them. We need to staff them. You know, we need to work better at fixing these things that everyone can see as a problem. And here's how we're going to do it. So I think that creates new opportunities to be able to improve public services. Um, I I worry slightly with labour because when I look at some of their health policies, a lot of them are very much you know, we'll give you a guarantee that you can get this or that. Um, and I sometimes worry with guarantees and targets, you know, sort of if, if you don't have any detail behind them as to how you're going to achieve them, you can risk just looking at the short term and just using them as something to bash, you know, schools or hospitals with rather than actually empowering them to be able to do what, what, um, what, uh, what they're best at. You set me up perfectly, uh, Mosin, <laughs> because I'm I've actually got the Labour's uh, NHS page on me, and they their line is more doctors, more nurses, lower waiting times, higher standards for patients. That's the Labour pe- pledge. Now I that again, <laughs> yeah, no, we don't disagree with that, but it's not talk, it's not tackling the fundamental issues, is it, Kate? No, and I think going back to what you were saying about um, long-term thinking and long-term planning, I think you could think about that in in the local government context of green spaces, um, making it easier for people to walk uh, around their area, um, air pollution, uh, improved cycling infrastructure, active travel. I've been working really hard on that at the county and encouraging. And, you know, you've got to do this cleverly. You've got to bring your residents with you and your community with you, and they can Mm. see the benefits of, of, of... of the well-being that comes from that uh, and i have you know often said in county council our social care bill will be cheaper if people walk more during their midlife and they won't need care and they won't fall uh, and as they get older and and that's a whole culture change uh, but it's not it's not happening in west sussex they are not they're on the naughty step in terms of active travel they're not having the next round of funding whereas hampshire are ahead they're getting the funding for active travel because um, the Conservatives who run the council are digging in and they're not um, they're not saying we need to be brave with these policies and take the residents with us who say they want to have a, a, a greener and, and more uh, improved environment to live in. It's not going to happen just by saying it. You need mm. to put And that is challenging, as we can hear in lots of areas where there's conversations about low traffic neighbourhoods and things and, and air pollution, which is killing people. I think one of the good things about the Liberal Democrats sort of speaking with my federal policy committee hat on is obviously we've got a social care carers uh, policy paper coming to our spring conference. We've also um, either completed or are doing um, policy work around green spaces, access to countryside, ensuring equity in that. So you know, one of the, one of the things that won't be a surprise to your listeners is as Liberal Democrats, we don't just focus on you know, health, health or home affairs, we look at all the areas because we are aware how all of the different policy areas contribute to health, to education, to equality and so forth. Yeah, and uh, again, I'm talking because my county budget is Thursday, so that's how that's a, that's a, I've got an exciting week ahead. And it's things like you know, I was looking and I asked the officers because they they know their staff, they know their departments, and I, I went to them and said, okay, so what can we do potentially as a county council to help ease the pressures on the NHS? And, and going back to another conversation, we've got thirty percent vacancy rates. In thing we cannot get more staff to come and help deal with the social care issue or get more things and I, I you know and whether that's I'm recruiting from abroad or anywhere else we ju- we 
it, Britain is not an attractive place at the moment to come and work. Mm. And that the reality is of that, where there are other opportunities for people to go elsewhere. Um, and also, you talk about um, the kind of uh, having healthier lifestyles within our communities. Again, simple solution, but the Conservatives run Lancashire County Council as well. They're talking about tree planting, but in rural villages, when actually what we need is, you know, in all communities, whether that's urban communities, suburbs, going to think you need, you know, more trees to suck up those pollutants, lower the temperatures during heat waves, all the rest of it. And it's, I, I do worry how many authorities and particularly this government look for quick fixes. And, mm -hmm. you know, and what we'll do is just lurch from one crisis to another. Mm -hmm. I'm getting nods. So that's good. That, that's yeah, good. I mean, we, we all agree, agree Sarah, so, you know, there's nothing for us to say there. <laughs> so, yeah. go, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned you can't get any staff. I mean, we could, we should mention that, that, that the, the, the Brexit has done, uh, has an enormous impact on, on, on our staffing, I think, in social care and, and uh, um, the NHS. We, we, it has to be, Tories are not prepared to admit that, but it's clearly having a bigger impact impact and they are in west sussex they're trying to recruit from overseas but i think there is some quite um tricky ethical angle on that yeah it is and but what and what what separates us really importantly from labor is because labor's utterly terrified to talk about free movement of people that and we are not going to solve this issue without without helping uh get goods and people from abroad and it goes both ways uh obviously and you're right there is an ethical question about doctors coming from abroad and, uh, and working in the nhs or or nurses or care workers or whatever but the fact of the matter is it our, our workforce crisis has been massively exasperated by the by now having a lack of freedom of movement in the thing. And Labour won't champion that. They're terrified. They think all of us mm. up north in Labour seats must be absolutely frothing the mouth for less immigrants uh, or, or less uh, economic migrants. It's just, and and they are going. We have to be that party that pushes that. And it will say to some people. And actually, are we getting to a point? Now, this is a thing where actually people will see. You know, the, the anti-immigrant side is, oh, we're full. We need, you know, we don't need them, all that sort of thing. Well, clearly we do. And it's and if you look at the NHS crisis, it's very evident that we need more people to come in. That will be training our, training people in this country, but also recruiting from abroad if necessary. So we have to champion that, don't we, Mosin? Yes. And, and I think we've always been very clear in terms, you know, our views on, well, it's very clear our views on you know, opposing Brexit and the fact that we as Liberal Democrats, we are internationalists, you know, we recognise, you know, sort of the, the value of diversity of different people with different skills and much needed occupations just from a pure nationalistic self-interest perspective, you know. We do need people coming in and working and bringing their own experiences and skills and improving Britain. You know, that's how we get to be, you know, a really, uh, a really excellent nation. And if we just shut the door, you know, sort of people talk about, oh, yes, we'll, you know, train doctors and nurses rapidly. It takes easily, um, you know, half a decade to produce um, a doctor you know, fresh out of medical school, and then a further, you know, half decade to a decade to actually produce a consultant. Same thing, you know, for nurses, you know, psychologists, occupational therapists, all the um, staff sets, uh, and, you know, also in social care. You know, we have lost so many social care uh, workers through, you know, just saying, you know, Britain is not open for work. Why would you do that? You know, that is anti-enterprise as well. You know, it's not what 
the Tories historically or even Labour historically would have said that they were about. But, you know, we can see clearly now both parties are just shutting the door um, and the Liberal Democrats are the only ones who are waving that flag off, you know, come on in because, you know, we respect you and we need you. Right? <laughs> yes. And it is. It, we we've got. We, there is a clear. There's a there's a line. We, we've got a. We got that area that we can champion, and we will. And we'll do it in a way that is 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 absolutely with our values, and um and proud to champion it. And uh, and but we've got a political space to also do it as well. So, mm. uh, and I'm sure those messages will 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 gradually that narrative will begin to flow and be a bit louder because we've been reluctant to do it um, for various reasons, I think. And on the doorsteps, people aren't, aren't bringing that up as Europe as the most important issue. But as people realise that it is uh, affecting every, everybody's lives because of the workforce, then we, the workforce is our step to having that conversation. But yes, it, we must do it. It's absolutely mm. vital. I suppose one thing, uh, we're coming near the end of the podcast episode and we'll be doing listeners, I know uh, quite a few listeners contacted me saying, actually, I can we talk about this element of it and this element of the NHS? It's not going away. We are going to do numerous episodes from, we've had obviously uh, people who are on the podcast who have been nurses on the front line. I don't, we had an offer of someone who's a call handler to come on the podcast for this. I think would be we're going to do so many episodes of the NHS because it is one of the, it's always a key um, battleground for any general election, but and it's now especially so. But I suppose this might be a slightly tricky situation given all the reasons I pointed out at the start about excess deaths, strikes, and and stress. But do do you, Kate and Mosin, have any re- optimistic views for the future that actually, you know, there are ways we can see this getting better if we're if we're brave enough to do it? Uh, you're nodding, Mosin, so I'll let you go first. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like, first of all, I'd say, you know, I've seen so much really innovative working, you know, in the NHS and in social care, you know, whether it's locally, regionally, you know, across different departments. I've already touched on how it's, you know, across health, housing, education, and so forth. There's a lot of good work, you know, tremendous good work happening. And, you know, we will continue to learn from that and do better. And all the things that we've spoken about in terms of staffing, resourcing, um, that's largely about giving that headspace to continue to excel and do better and to, you know, just improve that, that sort of fund or customer experience of not being able to get a GP, not being able to get a dentist, not being able to get a paramedic on time. So that's, that's very positive. The other thing I would also say is, yes, there is recruitment and retention problems, but, you know, the next generation of doctors, nurses, you know, psychologists, dentists and so forth, you know, they, they do still want to, you know, join in. The pandemic has shown, you know, the importance of healthcare, social care to everyone. And that, that fills me with a lot of hope because it means when you go to constituents and say, you know, we want to improve this and that, they will recognise that actually, yeah, this is vitally important to me. Kate? Yes, I think I can be optimistic because we need to do what we've been talking about, which is uh, build the community resilience. And we've got a fantastic primary care. We've got some very um, skilled uh, primary care teams. And I think they are doing innovative things. Uh, uh, and in terms of skill mix, getting lots of getting pharmacists doing more and, and the healthcare assistants doing more. And then you concentrate the really tricky managing uncertainty decisions to the more uh, for for your, uh, your the, the doctors and nurses. Um, I think 
if there are some areas of the countries that have got frailty hubs, which are ways of getting the community uh, uh, looking after these really frail patients. So when they go into crisis, they don't go into hospital. And at the same time, we need to just think about social care again. We need to think about all those family carers and giving them more support in the community. And I, I'm optimistic that we can do it. Going back to what Daisy said, we need to get the tech to work. Um, uh, but I think uh, I think there's great innovation innovation in general practice. And I, my final thought is we are privileged to have an NHS free at the source of, you know, point of care. Mm. And we don't think about that and we mustn't lose sight of that. It's an incredible uh, thing that we all have, this re this amazing opportunity to have care when we need it. And we should hang on to that optimism. Absolutely. That's a lovely sentiment. And I suppose it goes right back to my first point where I said, you know, people are living longer. And that is actually generally a good thing and a success of a, a modern society is that actually we are surviving longer and hopefully getting uh, into a, a, a nice ripe old age. As I'm about to approach 40, I start to think about these things even more. <laughs> but no, but thank you, Kate. Thank you, Moses. Thank you also to Daisy for coming on. I said we'll have much more about this. But comment below. This is a really, really huge issue, both now and going forward. If you have questions, if you have comments, do let us know. We'll have more episodes on it. But again, thanks once again to uh, to Mosin and for Kate for coming on the show. We'll be back with loads more episodes coming up, particularly as we start building towards the local elections and into the general election. We'll start having policy stuff coming through from Spring Conference onwards, so we will dissect and uh, go through all that as well. So thank you very much for watching and listening, and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank, thank you for having me, John. John. Thanks. Thank you.